Welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast that dives deep into important topics and fosters understanding by exploring captivating interviews with diverse guests, where we discuss how their unique experiences have shaped them into the individuals they are today. This podcast is committed to having honest and thought-provoking conversations to arouse curiosity and convey essential messages of empathy, inclusion, and diversity, one conversation at a time. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I am excited to be welcoming James Pickles. James is a mental health advocate, accomplished public speaker, and professional performance coach. James's mission comes from his own profound experiences. Confronting stress-induced burnout and breakdown, he transformed his narrative into a beacon of hope. In this episode, we dive into James's extraordinary journey from leading a top European sales team to grappling with an unexpected mental and physical breakdown and how he uncovered the transformative power of dialogue and empathy. Discover how he turned his experiences into a driving force for positive change and how through heartfelt conversations and empowering talks, he dismantles the mental health stigma, encouraging everyone to seek the support that they deserve. If you would like to learn more about James, his company, or how to get in touch with him, check out this episode's show notes for all the links. Listeners, before we dive into today's conversation, I want to tell you about my new favorite kitchen gadget, the Berry Blaster. I don't know about you, but I love fresh strawberries during the warm summer months. The only downside is I hate how much fruit is wasted when you cut off the top of the strawberries. Well, I recently found the Berry Blaster, which helps prevent fruit waste. And all you have to do is pop off the tops and your berries are ready to eat. You don't need to be a savant in the kitchen to use the Berry Blaster, and it's even safe for children of all ages to use. The best part is the Berry Blaster contains no sharp knives, it's dishwasher safe, and it takes up little to no space in your kitchen. To learn more about the Berry Blaster, visit the link in this episode's show notes or go to Amazon and search Berry Blaster. Lastly, check them out on Instagram at the Berry Blaster and give them a follow. I hope you enjoyed this episode. James, thank you so much for joining me all the way from the UK. I'm excited to speak with you. And real fast before we dive into the conversation, I just have to shout out Rob Volpe. Uh, Rob is a former podcast guest, and he is actually the one that introduced us. So I always like to give a little shout out to those who help connect me with just amazing people with even more extraordinary stories. And when we spoke last time, you've had a very interesting journey. And I think one thing, if you wouldn't mind, that where I would like to start is I think a lot of us, especially people pleasers, I am like a recovering people pleaser, say yes all the time. And it becomes wow. habit to say yes, because you see that people like you more, you get more opportunities and you just keep saying yes. And then people just end up depending on you, say no you'll always say, oh, I can do that, or I'll volunteer. Can you talk about how that habit started to form? And by forming that habit, what you saw the chain reaction happened in your life? Um, yeah, it's like a, a self-perpetuating system. So exactly as you describe, it's it's nice when you say yes to something, because the person that's asked you to perform whatever the task was, or do them a favor, or help them out, or lighten the load, or whatever it is, um, they want your help. So you say, yeah, okay, I'll do that for you. And they're really pleased. So you feel validated and wanted and helpful and all of those things. Um, and it does become a habit. 
it perpetuates, doesn't it? But also because people respond really positively to it, um, it's quite hard to learn to do it differently because it's naturally naturally feels more positive to say yes than no. Almost like the word itself, yes, is positive and no is negative. Uh, so, yeah, I thought I've formed that habit very early on and particularly in my later years at work. It's something that I became known for. It would be the guy that could be relied upon, that would always be calm and confident, could always fit it in, was never stressed. So why don't you go ask James because he'll sort it out. And I did feel good about it, uh, but I hadn't really taken a moment to consider what it might be costing me to say yes all the time. And I think we all go through that because as you said, yes, when you say yes, people depend on you. They know you're reliable. They know you get the job done. And those are all great attributes to be associated with your name. And when you say no, at least for me, I always am like, oh, am I being selfish? Like, are people going to be mad at me because I say no? Or, well, if I say no, then who's going to do it? Is the job going to get done? All right, well, it's not going to get done. Then it's going to end up more work for everyone and people will blame me. So it's this weird psychological component, just saying yes or no. And I think a lot of individuals in the corporate world, if they want to continue being promoted or they want that job security, when you're looking at if you have to do layoffs and lay someone off and you say, well, they always say yes, they always are a team player. You associate your almost self-worth with knowing that people depend on you and you kind of started to experience that and you kept saying yes. And can you talk about how that affected your home life and your personal life? Well, so here's the thing. If you're a yes person in one sphere, you're probably a yes person in all of the spheres that you exist in. Um, and I think, I suspect, well, no, I don't suspect or think. I firmly believe that we have finite resource, finite energy. You, you can top it up, right? But at the end of the day, you can, only, you can only give what you have to offer. And if you've said yes too many times to too many people, pretty soon you're going to run out of steam for that. So um, in the habit, in the instinct of saying yes to please the person in the moment, it's very likely that there is going to be more than one person that you are going to disappoint by your inability to deliver against all of the things that you said yes to, to the standard that they and you expect. So there's a real diminishing return effect. So it feels good in the moment. It's funny you should use terms like selfish. Like if I say no, that's selfish. I might argue that by saying yes, uh, willy nilly to use English colloquialism, um, you, you're, you are being selfish by not setting boundaries. It's not in your interest or theirs. And thinking in, in a client relationship, for example, it's entirely possible that the client might not know that the thing that they're asking for isn't the thing that they need. You saying yes all the time and not creating a gap, a pause, a moment to reflect uh, mightn't be the most helpful thing that you can do. So, yeah, they might feel good in the moment, but actually a well-placed pause of, hang on, can I understand why you're asking for that thing? Can we pause for a minute to understand the context? I want to help, but before I dive in and do that, I want to make sure I fully understand what you're asking for so that I can deliver to the standard that I and you want. So let's just pause. It's not a no necessarily, but let's throw in a, a not yet until we really understand what we're looking for. I think that's a great piece of advice and I'm definitely going to use that in my corporate life because 
people need to move fast. Everything's, oh, time is money. But as you said, sometimes pausing and saying, let's think about that before you just say yes, allows you to really think, is this the right choice? The other thing- The other thing is when I was researching and preparing for this, one thing that I realized is you and I both have done triathlons and it seemed like when I've heard you speak in other presentations that you're a competitor, I am too. And I like having that competition, having that target, having those goals. But again, anything in the extreme isn't the best. It's not healthy. And I heard you talk about how you were playing rugby, then you started biking. And if you're biking, well, why not do triathlons? And you just like kept adding on, on top of saying yes all the time. And the reason I'm um, bringing up these certain points is to talk about the bigger thing that happened. So I'm trying to add layers of everything you were taking on. But as someone who not only is saying yes at work, but you also want to compete, get the best sales numbers. And if you hit those sales numbers and people give you a bigger number and you're just constantly running on this hamster wheel. Can you talk about how like athletics and that competition started to also play into your life and help with this bigger buildup that ended up resulting in what ended up happening? And we'll dive into that. Yeah, for sure. And it's, um, you're quite right to point it out because there's, lot, there's lots of similarities as to how I behaved at work and how I behaved outside of work. So uh, you're right, I'm a competitor. I, I played competitive sports since I was a kid. Um, I was always pretty good at athletic type stuff. So before doing well before triathlons, I was a decathlete, um, pretty good one. So I was uh, at one point um, the best junior decathlete in the county that I live in um, when I was about eighteen. Uh, so yeah, it was, you know it's deeply embedded. And the thing about being a competitor and playing competitive sports is you can measure definitively the success. Uh, there's a metric for it. So you're either competing against yourself with a time, say, or a distance that you're trying to hurl an object, or you're racing against another human being. Either way, you can measure that success. And that's there's a lot of commonality uh, between the appeal of that and having a sales job, because you can measure it, and so can everybody else. It gives you a yardstick that's really clear to measure against. So I was naturally drawn to continue to compete and continue to use metrics, um, and you mentioned that I was biking a lot, and I was, and I'd use that. Uh, you probably got it in the US, right? Strava, the app. So you can use that to track your runs and bikes and swims and all the rest of it. Uh, so I was incapable at the time of operating in a work or a sporting context without looking for data points to validate my success of them. Almost like if I couldn't measure it, there's no point in doing it. And if I could measure it, I ought to be able to win at it. And all those things were really kind of merged, smashed together. Uh, At no point did I consider if I actually really liked doing triathlons or if I was enjoying it for the sake of it, because it it played very well with the work hard, play hard uh, phrase that I quite, quite liked. But a bit like uh, famous, well, a long time ago now, but. Um, One of the UK's most famous rugby players when the UK won the World Cup in 2003 was Johnny Wilkinson. And he was an absolutely supreme competitor, top of his game. He was the best in his position in that sport in the world at that time. And when he retired, he admitted fairly tearfully in an interview, at no point had he enjoyed playing rugby professionally. 
because it was only about the win. He'd never enjoyed it. Only when he retired from international sport and played in France for a few years, for the first time in his whole life, dedicated his whole life to that sport. He only liked it when he didn't have to compete at top level anymore. And uh, I, that's kind of where I am now. I'm still a competitive guy, but I'm also about 50. So I have to uh, reconcile. I can't win at everything I ever lay my hand to anymore. And so to kind of like set up the scene for listeners, you're killing it at work. You're killing it outside work. And I remember someone telling me a quote once when I had said years ago, I was just tired. And someone said, well, Beyonce has 24 hours in the day. You do too. You can do more. You can do more. And I didn't agree with that quote. Still don't. But I think a lot of people keep seeing this expectation of, you got to be great at work. You got to be great, like physically fit and have a hobby and family and all these things start to pile up. And then they find a crutch and they start to self-medicate because they're not happy. And if you actually open up that door and really actually admit that you're not happy, you're going to break down. So you started doing something that I think a lot of people do. They just don't want to admit that there's a problem or why they're doing it. And you turn to alcohol can you talk about how that habit started? Because I've heard you speak on it, and I think it's something so many listeners can relate to. Yeah, that's right. That that crutch, yeah. So uh, here I am busily working hard and playing hard. And um, I quite like what you said about Beyonce. Beyonce has 24 hours a day, and so do you. You can always do more. Let's not forget, she has an enormous entourage that helps and her And a do- staff and billions of dollars. And, you know, it's not a one-to-one equal no, it's uh, the, the only comparison that you can draw is the number of hours in a day and possibly gender. Other, other than that, none of it is the same. Um, and anyway, that's her choice. What's that got to do with you? You could do more. It com- comes up a lot. I, and don't worry, Mallory, I'll probably answer your question in a minute. But um, I'm just really struck by the you could do more part of that observation. Um, and I guess where I went a little bit wrong before was I also held on to that. I could do more, which was also wrapped up in, and therefore I should. And I'd feel a bit differently now just because I could do something. Again, let's introduce a pause and have a little moment to reflect on just because I could, does that mean that I should? And wrapped up in that is a clearer understanding, which I didn't have previously, on what enough looks like. At what point have I done enough? Do I know what enough is at its lower level and its upper level? And where am I existing? Otherwise, well, otherwise I did what I did before, which was actually cast all of my happiness into the future. If I only make enough money, if I only hit that PB, then I'll be happy. And it was always in the future, not in the present. Anyway, back to your point about crutches. Um, Funny enough, I was on crutches about three weeks ago because I tore something in my foot being too competitive on a squash court. had to wander around on crutches. So, yeah, familiar with crutches. and one of my my crutches was was alcohol in order to perhaps exert some control over some of the the thoughts and feelings that I might have. So I was either drinking to feel or drinking to not feel. But I wasn't really aware of it at the time. It just became a mechanism, a coping mechanism. So uh, as time drifted on, had I not had the big life changing event, um, I imagine I would have. Co- relied on alcohol even more than I was. And I was very busily creating an alcohol dependency, not in a kind of rolling around the street, 
shouting at strangers and being paralytic, um, but self-medicating to get through the day. I might point out I didn't drink all all day starting in the morning, but any time from mid-afternoon would usually be okay. Definitely in the evening and very often by myself. And maybe that was the warning sign I could have paid more attention to uh, as drinking. By the way, I'm not anti-alcohol per se. You know, everyone's free to choose to put whatever they want in their body. So I'm, I'm not going to uh, rail against the evils of big alcohol companies. But for me personally, um, and I do still choose to drink, but at least now it's a choice. And I ask myself, when I fancy a drink of an evening, um, am I reaching for the fridge for a beer because I want one or because I need one? And if the answer is need, that's usually the time where I don't open it. Have fizzy water instead. I possibly have answered your question. Have I? Yes, yes, absolutely. And I think that that's something that so many people can relate to. You know, I grew up, my mom's a recovering alcoholic. I think that alcohol culture in today's world, whether it's in the United States or in the UK, it plays a big part in networking, in social events, in work events, in all different aspects. And when you are trying to mask or not deal with something, it's a really easy out. And a lot of people turn to it. So I have to applaud you for even now realizing, do I need it or do I want it? And you having that kind of conversation to look internally to do a self-check. How are, how are you feeling? And if you're like, oh, I need it. Well, why? And you, I'm sure you have different things and we'll go through because I know you are a life coach now and a corporate coach and some of those tools that you work with clients. But I really want to talk about that big event. You were at a conference with colleagues and as we all so often do, we always go, oh, how are you? How are you? And most people, I do it too. I go, I'm fine. But it's like, I'm an iceberg on top. It looks real small. I go, I'm fine. But down below, you have no idea what's going on. You have no idea how I'm feeling. It could be not a great time. There could be a lot going on, but socially, you don't just start talking about where you are or what's going on. Usually the, you just say, oh, I'm fine or I'm good. And you had a colleague that did something that I've started to actually practice as well. And she doubled down and said, but how are you really? And I'm going to let you take it from there. Yeah, for sure. And it's a, it's a neat segue, Mallory, since we go on to this part of the story from previously talking about booze, because it all happened in a pub. And we were having some drinks after a big networking event, uh, a big industry event. So it was a trade show, right? One of the biggest. And all of our clients and customers and prospects have been there. A big chunk of our organization were always there, um, front and center, you know, waving the flag for our services. And um, sat with her, uh, Susan, and um, she is a senior director. So she's like roughly at my level in terms of hierarchy. We don't report to each other. There's no direct reporting there. We'd collaborated a few times. I liked her. Um, I assumed she liked me. Never actually asked her, but assumed she did. Um, and we did the, you know, the how are you game, which which you describe. Hey, how are you? Yeah, fine, thanks. How are you? I guess uh, without going off on a tangent, the difficulty of that is it's not necessarily obvious whether the question is real when people are throwing it out there. So it's no wonder people don't answer it properly because it isn't clear. 
do you re- are you really asking? Do you really want to know? Shall I launch into a full description of how I'm really feeling this week? Or do you just want the surface layer answer so that you can reply on the surface too and then move on to whatever it is that you wanted to talk about? So she elected not to do that that day um, for reasons unclear. But I have, I have asked her and she just said, you know, you didn't look yourself. She kind of knows what I look like and how I behave. I, I thought, meanwhile, I was doing a super good job of masking it all masking how I really felt and how I was really feeling at that time. Anyway, she doubled down and did a, how are you really? And I kind of gave her a look as to say, what, what's happening here? We don't usually double down on this question. And I think she probably added to it and said, you know, you don't kind of see yourself, you know, I think I'm maybe seeing something there. And um, by accident, end up telling her the truth about how I felt. I had no plan to do so. Uh, I guess I was so tired by then, like bone tired down into my soul. Didn't have it in me to think of anything clever to say as an alternative. So just ended up admitting to her, uh, I'm not fine. This is too hard. I can't do this anymore. At least that's what I would have said. Got about halfway through it. Uh, And the act of admitting to her and more importantly to myself that I had been existing past my limits for too long. Uh, Instead of finishing the sentence, I just broke down in tears. And like most guys, I suppose, that's not a particularly normal thing for me to do, especially in front of the very people who I've been uh, applauded for saying yes to for a decade, the very people I've been trying to impress and prove myself to for a decade. Um, that's not the audience I choose in front of. Um, but more than that, it wasn't just like a delicate little cry. It was more like ugly, proper ugly crying with snot coming out of my nose and blotchy face and funny little hiccupy noises. Basically, I'm putting so much effort into trying to stop and hold it in that uh, it's like it's bursting out. It's coming out. The dam, the dam has begun to burst. Nothing I could do could hold it in. And that, Mallory, was the most frightened I've ever been. Uh, and I've been in some, you know, moderately perilous situations. Um, very nearly drowned a couple of times by thinking I was better at surfing than I was and going out in quite rough conditions. And another time trying to beat the local how many lengths of a pool can you do underwater in one breath record. Uh, actually, my best friend uh, literally had to rescue me because I was blacking out underwater. Uh, and I wasn't as frightened then, nearly drowning, as I was at the prospect of blubbering in front of all of my colleagues and loads of our clients. And it was uh, the sense that I couldn't stop and how stupid they must think I am and how embarrassed I was that they see me be so weak. And if I could fly up loads of air quotes at this point, I would, because that's not how they felt at all. It's just my own inner voice telling me this nonsense and of course what happened was they were worried about me and concerned and they cared and were really leaning in and going oh what how can we help what's oh no this is terrible with no small slice of irony one of the ways in which they thought they might help was get me another drink because we're in a pub can i get you something we ended up all getting smashed once I'd calmed down a little bit, dried the tears and snot off my face. 
Um, and in those moments of having drinks together, which is not drinking by yourself, that's drinking socially. Uh, admittedly, perhaps at that time, not for great reasons, but at least I was with people. And to my utter amazement, these role models that I had began to explain that they too have had tough times and would tell me in some detail about them and tell me about the kind of help and support and therapy and counselling that they'd sought um, to help themselves through it. It had never occurred to me that these people uh, would need help like that or that they would talk about it. It was brand new information. I'd worked one guy in particular, who was my boss. I'd worked with him for nine years at that point. We'd flown around the world doing sales conferences. I'd had many drinks on many occasions, shared loads of personal information. He'd never told me that. Kind of wish now in hindsight uh, that we'd all, as a leadership team, collectively found a way to share a little more about those times when we needed help, a little more publicly. And that experience, once you started, it lasted for 15 days. You had a panic attack. That lasted 15 days. When you said that to me, I couldn't even imagine what over two weeks of experiencing that felt like. Can you talk about the steps you started to take, the conversation with your wife, and then ultimately the conversation you had with your company? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, two-week panic attack. Um, I make it really clear, not at the acute end for two weeks, it ebbed and flowed, um, but at no point was I feeling normal over that two-week period. Um, having broken down that time in front of everybody, got home really late, quite drunk, which by then actually had pretty normal behaviour for me, so there were no surprises there. Ended up the following morning, as I no doubt had snored and fidgeted all night in bed, keeping my wife awake at night. She would have been, quite understandably, pretty pissed off. And uh, fairly jaded, I expect, because I've been doing it for probably a couple of years. Um, funny what you can get used to. So the following morning, she, you know, once she had quite rightly observed that I'd got back late and made noise and she'd had a terrible night's sleep because of me, ended up saying, how was it yesterday anyway? Bless her for being so polite. Um, I ended up telling her the story and I was attempting to tell it like it was an amusing anecdote. Oh, yeah, a funny thing happened last night. Um, and the act of describing it, as I repeated the sentence that I had said to Susan about that I couldn't do it anymore, it was too hard, absolutely break down, fell to pieces again in front of her less than 12 hours later. Again, fairly uncontrollable sobbing situation. Um, in some ways, it was even more frightening because here I go again. I, in my head, I thought, Okay, I can begin writing off that whole experience, sweep it under the carpet and ignore it. Uh, but here I am again, doing it again. Concluded that the best thing to do was probably not go to work. Emailed a few people and they all readily agreed that taking a couple of days off is a great idea. You know, see how you feel, come back next weekend. So it took a couple of days off. <coughs> um, when we talk about what steps did I take, the first step I took was to furiously ignore the whole thing. That's my first step. Deny it at all costs. Think of any explanation that might be able to uh, distract me from the reality that some bad psychological stuff was happening. I'd far rather have a, like an exotic uh, 
bacterial infection. You know, it'd be much easier to have something like that. Then I can turn it into a funny story. More importantly, I don't have to face anything, change anything or accept anything. I can just carry on. So that's what I tried to do for three or four days. There's a big party that weekend um, near to us, loads of people that I know. And um, it's pretty good at drinking by then, right? Semi-professional drinker could uh, pack it away. uh, That's another consequence of 20 years of playing rugby, famously good at having beers afterwards. Um, But I tied one on that weekend in a way that was extreme even for me by then to the point that my wife observed on the Sunday as I was had a, like an earth shatteringly severe hangover. Um, she said, where's the effect of you were really on one last night, manic. Uh, it's like you had heard that this was the last night that any drinks would be available on earth. And you were trying to make sure you got yours. And it's just quite a good turn of phrase. Cause that's like, I couldn't get them in quick enough um so what steps did i take ignore it and drink loads that's what uh come monday go back to work um absolutely determined that i'm going to basically laugh it off brush it aside um not interested in having any kind of conversation about why that might have happened nope not having that i'm just going to double down on effort and say yes to some more things and that'll distract everybody and me and i can get back to what passed for normal which I look back now and what normal used to look like for me basically was a level of misery at home and pretending to be very happy at work uh, and using, as we to our earlier conversation, metrics to prove it. If anybody went, how are you? I'd go, absolutely fabulous. Look at my numbers and that. But that in my head, that was entirely the way yeah. to measure happiness. I don't have a drinking problem. I just biked X mile kilometers or swam this or did this. Like my body's great. Like, if you're an alcoholic, I couldn't compete at this level. I couldn't be playing rugby like this or running or biking or whatever you're doing. Um, when did you make the decision to take, to leave work, to have an absence? That was several days later. So I'm busily ignoring it, furiously even, um, trying harder and harder at work. I, looking back, I began to notice things like short-term memory was... Uh, <sighs> Well, it was degrading really quickly, a long time, uh, alongside rather my processing ability, ability to make clear decisions, ability to filter, make those decisions about what stuff's important versus what isn't. All of that started to degrade. Um, Attention span, all of those processes that you take for granted. Um, And then by the end, it was, uh, I think it was a Thursday, probably a Thursday. So I'm like day eight or nine into the panic attack and going in a perfectly benign meetings information sharing between a couple of departments it's an update kind of thing and uh, the tension of being in there because if i'm in here listening to you lot me and my team aren't selling and our entire raison d'etre is about selling and we are successful based on the numbers that we bring in therefore anything that isn't that ergo waste of time so there's real tension cropping up. And that's where the panic attack really ramped up by that stage with some classic symptoms, racing heart rate, blood pressure all over the place, trembling hands, nausea, lightheadedness, um, proper sense of panic, like deep in my core. 
And uh, by then I'd learned about square breathing technique during the week. So I thought, okay, I'll just, I'll just breathe my way through this, which is me trying to exert control, frankly. I don't like what I'm feeling, so I'm going to exert control over it with a technique. Uh, but I'd spend 40 minutes, roughly 40 minutes, square breathing in a meeting in the boardroom in front of everybody to just exist in the room. And at any point, I was thinking, this meeting better finish because I, I can't hold on to this. Uh, meeting did finish. I looked like absolute shit by then. Staggered back to the desk through a massive open plan office. Got back to my own desk with my pod with my team. Sat my head in my hands, continued to square breathe. Realising that moment I've lost the ability to read. As I look at all my notes and stuff in front of me, can't read any of it. It's just gobbledygook. And people are, by now, even my professional masking of pretending to be fine is totally eroded. Um, people coming up saying, are you okay? I'm trying, I'm still ridiculously, I'm still trying to say, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, fine, thanks. No, I'm not. My heart rate's 160. I think I'm going to faint or puke or cry or scream or all of the above. I'm obviously not fine, but I continue to try to pretend to be. Only by then my power of speech had gone too. So I couldn't inform the words, couldn't process what was happening, couldn't read, couldn't form words and couldn't articulate them. And that, Mallory, was the tipping point. Had to be that bad before I would actually concede, I'm ill. I need help. I need to get out of here. So at no point was I making rational choices. This wasn't clever me for being self-aware. I almost had to have a total physical and mental breakdown before I'd allow myself to confess to being ill. Then once obviously you got to the point, you can't do anything. You're literally frozen. You can't really talk. You can't really read. You're trying just to breathe and having to concentrate so hard on just breathing. You take nine months off. Yep. You finally have to admit at that point, there's a problem. I have an issue. And I think a lot of people, that's the hardest step is, yeah, you can deny, you can mask, but taking that first step, raising your hand saying, I need help. What steps did you do? So if someone's listening to this and saying, I'm not at that point where I like have to think about breathing, but everything you're saying, I experienced, what did you do to slowly start to regain not only control of your life, but happiness as well? Trying to accelerate through some stages. So, and we can backtrack still if you want to. Oh, no. So, all, all I was going to go here was like, the, like, skip to the end. The, the answer is learn to talk, right? And I don't mean recover the power of speech, be able to verbalize thoughts, any of those things. What I mean is learn for the first time, not the first time, like when we're kids, we can do it pretty easily. We just say what we think, say what we feel, and we don't mask it or filter it, it comes out. Um, and then through probably puberty and then you know adolescence and puberty and early adulthood and then when you go to work you just begin to learn to not tell the truth about stuff and project out what you think people want to hear for various good reasons so I did I had a like a 30 plus year habit to unpick uh, so I had to learn what it is to talk and tell the truth particularly about difficult hard to articulate sensitive subjects that are personal uh, I had to do that through therapists so I found a therapist and it was really difficult to do that um, because the first few ones that I spoke to, firstly, it involves you to, like you rightly say, admit that you need some help, which is a pretty big deal because it's almost like admitting failure or weakness. I feel very differently about that now, of course. Um, support is supportive, the clues in the name. So, you know, why would we not? Why would we not go to people that are better than us at stuff? Because it's helpful. Um 
Anywho, spoke to a few therapists on the phone and I didn't really like the first couple. And nobody had explained to me that there's every chance that you won't like the first therapist that you meet. It's not a reflection on them, their professional capacity, or you really. It's just that you haven't found the right one yet because compatibility and honesty is like integral to the relationship being successful. Um, Well, you might argue any relationship to be successful. Um, So just as you wouldn't bump into the person of your dreams and marry them the, the moment you step outside the front door, you have to shop around a bit. So do you with a therapist, but that had not been explained. And bearing in mind, I'm still really shit at making decisions. I'm very ill. And yet the onus of responsibility, as far as the whole healthcare system and my company and insurance companies are concerned, the onus of responsibility is on the sufferer to have the wherewithal to find the right help. At the very time, they're least equipped to do so. Absolutely ridiculous. Somebody's drowning in the sea. You don't shout at them, why don't you swim to shore? This is where help lives. They're too busy drowning. You have to swim out and get them and take a little life raft like Baywatch. Go out on your jet ski, take a flotation device to them and bring it. Let's not get lost in any of uh, too much Baywatch analogy. Um, But yeah, I found a therapist, learned how to talk. But I also learned what it is to be listened to. I'm not sure I've been listened to possibly ever by anyone it's not a reflection of my friends and family it's just i'm not sure any of us have learned how to shut up and not interrupt somebody the pause is not the invitation to say something it's a pause is probably a processing that's going on the best guess you can often give and i know this now because i've trained in it i do it professionally but i spend almost all of my time waiting in a conversation uh which helpfully is an acronym If you've asked somebody how they are and they pause, not your turn to talk, wait. And it stands for, why am I talking? I've asked you how you are. Wait. So yeah, that was it. That was it. Find a therapist. And there was some medical interventions as well. I had had to go to a GP. So somebody out there listening who knows in their heart that actually things aren't as they want them to be. They're not normal. They're not okay. Don't wait. Go get help. Go ask. Go find out. What's the worst that could happen? Worst can happen is uh, they might go, actually, you're not that bad. Here's a couple of helpful things that might make you feel better. The actual worst thing that can happen is you don't do it. You wait till you're really, really ill and it might be too late. I think you made a good point. I've been in therapy for seven, eight years. After a while, sometimes it's okay to switch therapists because there comes a point where they've given you all their insight and maybe their analogies or way of thinking just doesn't work anymore. It's okay to shop around. And I've heard so many people who, when I've listened to them and hear where they're at, I ask, have you tried therapy? And a lot of the time their response is, yeah, I went to one. I didn't really like it. It wasn't for me. I didn't like meet eye to eye with the therapist. And I explained that's the process. You're trying to figure out like which is the right fit for you. It is so similar to dating and each therapist has a different approach. And there's also life coaches, which I've actually switched from therapy after doing that for so long to a life coach, because the way of communicating, the way of 
um, opening my mind differently is different than how like a traditional, at least in the United States, therapist and I have interacted and talked about more of the past. I wanted to now dive into how are those past characteristics or ways of thinking playing in how I approach current issues and how do I look in the future? And I know that you've also started, you've trained, you are a coach. What led you to that path for someone who was so like, no, I'm not into therapy and, you know, holding it all in, you've really blossomed and explored and continue your growth in this healing journey and also now help others start their process. Yeah, it was like an epiphany moment, right? As I'd learned how to talk and learn how to listen and learn how to be listened to and how useful that was to help me unpick and process uh, and frankly identify and then release a whole load of invisible luggage that I've been dragging around with me for an awfully long time. I find the penny dropped. I don't actually know what I think about something until I've said it out loud. And yet all of my certainly professional life, I wouldn't open my mouth until I understood what I wanted to say. Because if what if I said the wrong thing or, you know, said something stupid or looked like an idiot? So I'd, I'd rather um, say nothing. That was an old quote from Socrates from thousands of years ago, that it's better to be thought a fool and remain silent than to open your mouth and uh, be proven one. I butchered that really badly, but that's roughly how it goes. I thought, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So unless you've got something clever to say, don't say anything. Unfortunately, I now realise I don't know what I think or feel about something really until I've had the opportunity to verbalise it. And simply put, you use a different bit of your brain for thinking than you do for speaking. In order to speak, it has to like go through a funnel almost, and the words have to be put in order so that they can be coherent. So the act of doing it is part of the processing of understanding what, what you might think. I've not had those opportunities before. I found it incredibly helpful. Uh, also found it incredibly helpful to realise that if you if you expect somebody to open up to you and trust you, it's in, in all likelihood, you might have to go first. You've got to give to get. Absolutely. And you know what I, you just mentioned reminds me of a question I ask every podcast guest during the prep call, and I'm pretty sure I asked you too. And the question really is, when's the last time you doubted yourself? And I've never... I've told other people the response, but I asked that question because after having over a hundred prep calls with a hundred different people, all different walks of life, professions, everything, even people at the top of their game, um, professional athletes, recording artists, they all go jokingly today, like laughing and they go, I doubt myself every day. And I think that's so interesting because as you said, it's better to speak something than to not, even if you are going to be a fool, everyone is doubting themselves. Everyone's questioning themselves. And if you realize you're in a room, in a conversation, in a work environment, or even a at your rugby club, that everyone's kind of feeling that insecure, wondering, they don't want to look you know, embarrassed or anything, but they have thoughts or want to say something. We all knew that's how we were all feeling. Can you imagine how much more empathetic we would be in conversations, how much more we would talk about mental health or how we really were feeling if we knew the person across from us was feeling the same way. It's a very, yeah, it's powerful it's, when you think we, um, about it. Yeah, I totally agree. And since, since we first met Malu a few months ago, 
So I ended up, I did a talk on my burnout experience at my rugby club in front of my peers. Um, I did it because I thought, oh, that'd be a good idea. And also somebody owed me a favour, so I had the whole thing filmed by a professional TV crew and all the rest of it. So oh, that's a good idea. I'll do it at the rugby club. That'd be nice. Um, having done like 45 quite large events in front of hundreds of people, like several time zones, streaming, hybrid, I've done big events, right? And this was in front of 18 people. And yeah, it was, at least in principle, the hardest one. Harder even than the first one. And that was bloody hard um, because these are my peers. These are my friends. I'm now like properly opening up and admitting some stuff in front of the very people that I ought to be able to do it to in an environment I ought to feel safe in. Uh, and interestingly, in many ways, did feel totally safe. Like it's funny how, how feeling exposed and vulnerable. We could all happily walk around with no clothes on in front of each other which I don't routinely do, by the way, like in public or anything. Um, so don't feel vulnerable at all in that context. But to open up to a bunch of bloke, tough dudes that you've played 300 rugby games with, really difficult. Um, did it. And then every single guy in the room came up to at the end saying, firstly, I had no idea. Secondly, I had no idea how similar some of your experiences to how I'm feeling right now. It's incredible. And since then, a whole load of other rugby people who couldn't attend came up to apologise that they couldn't attend and say, oh, how was it anyway? Like, oh, it's really good. You know, it's really interesting how many people realised they had so much in common on this topic. And each individual that couldn't turn up claiming logistical difficulty, that's rubbish. It was nothing to do logistics. They didn't feel safe to come. And, and then I'm, they wish they did, wish wish they would have. And I'm sure now with those guys, you had a close relationship, but now it's like elevated it where it's trusting and they can have room to talk and you're opening the communication with these individuals. And then maybe the hope is they go to a different network or a different group of friends and they can start that conversation and open up that way and open the doors for more people to communicate. It is a domino effect. And I think that it's very brave of you that not only did you fix yourself, but you talk to corporations, you talk to friends, you are sharing your story. And every time you're being so vulnerable about it, but in a way that you're helping so many more people understand you're not alone in feeling like this, um, especially I think working parents too, feel like this. As a male, you're not alone. My hope is by sharing not only this episode, but the work that you're doing, it helps future generations create a more understanding environment, but also in the corporate world, a more understanding. Like we talk about managing people. Managers are usually phenomenal individual contributors that are crushing it. They get promoted. They're managing a team of people, but they don't know how to manage with EQ. Like, See, I would argue that they're not managing people. They're managing a bigger target yeah. through the policy of people. Not everybody. There's some beautiful people out there who have taken the time. There's some do- amazing managers, but they do the work externally to show up. They come from, you know, Rob will talk about empathy. They're asking questions. They understand you are a person and you're not just helping with the sales target, 
but that is such a slim part of managers in corporate world. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. And to, to your point about domino effect and the next generation, so part of my motivation for doing this stuff, uh, and it was it was a choice, I decided to, it wasn't accidental, um, and it was tough in the beginning, but I would observe now, a couple of years in, 50 talks in, well over 100 coaching relationships had, lots of people helped and so on and so forth, um, gets easier gets easier to live this way. And I, listen, I'm not an advocate of every time somebody asks me how I am, I go, well, buckle up, buttercup. I'm about to launch into a 45-minute diatribe as to how I'm feeling that day. That's ridiculous. Um, but I tr- give them a little look and try and determine if the question is real. And if it is, I'll tell them. Not chapter and verse. I'll pause. And if they ask another question, I'll carry on. And if they don't, uh, I'll stop. But I'll definitely ask them how they are. Someone's got to go first, right? And I've decided that that can be me. To my point about the next generation is I've got two teenage children and one of them's a boy. And I'd quite like to give him, if I can, some of the vocabulary that he may need to use at some point to unclench his heart. Boys aren't good at talking. And I think that I know that that's a stereotype. Uh but it is a true one as far as I can see. Um, they're not taught to at school, home generally. I can't force him to talk. Actually, he doesn't talk very much. <laughs> it's a very it's a bit of a closed book. Um, I can't force him to it, but I can at least show him that I'm not fine all the time. And if he cares to ask, I'll tell him. It's not a thing to be ashamed of. It's a human condition. You know, what came to mind when you were saying that when growing up, I'm in the United States. When you were little, there was all these faces of emotions. And I remember, you know, at the end of the day, my mom would would ask me or my parents would be like, how are you feeling? And you would move the little magnet to like the happy phase, sad phase, or all the different emotions. So that because at that young of an age in kindergarten, first grade, primary school, um, you might not be able to put the name of the emotion, but you can look at the face and have an understanding of what that is. And when you were saying that, I was trying to think, when did we stop asking people how they really were? When did we take that away? At what point in our, you know, youth, adolescence, whenever, when did that get removed? Because you're teaching, we were taught kind of just, oh, you know, work harder. It will be fine. Move past it. Go run five miles, get your anger out, whatever it is. But you know, we all know that doesn't work. And I was just wondering, you're taught emotions when you're young and how to express them or say how you're feeling. But we obviously lose that skill at some point. Yeah, that's a good question. I thought yeah. of it like that. Um, I don't know if you guys have something similar in the UK. I'll send you the picture of like the faces I'm thinking of. I can literally picture it perfectly. Yeah, yeah. It was like a magnet and you would move the little place around to say this sounds lovely. Sounds lovely. I've, yeah I've not seen it yeah I'm just pondering why you would move away from that so by by your description it sounds like a really nice mechanism to help um somebody whose language hadn't developed yet to articulate something mm-hmm. right so we'll use pictures and imagery because it's easy uh, and as they get older and their language develops the supposed need for those smiley sad faces diminishes they become more and more sophisticated. It's like, come on now, use your words. Come on now, big boys don't cry. Um, you know, I'm sure it starts to get drummed out of you. Like the closest, and also, look, you know, if you're misbehaving or perhaps behaving emotionally, let's say, mm-hmm. 
I can hear it ringing in my ears now. Grow up. Stop stop being so silly. You're acting like a child. You want to be treated like an adult? Like all these sayings. And I don't think you've realized when you're saying it to your kid, anyone does what that the effect it could have. No, it's one of nature's cruel tricks in the brain is to allow the parts of your brain to develop that feel emotions to go first and the bits of your brain to process them second. And it definitely happens in childhood and it definitely happens with teenagers, I can tell you, when they go through puberty. They feel so vividly emotions through those turbulent hormonal times and they don't yet have the maturity in their brains to process those emotions. So they flare up all the time. Uh, one of the many things I'm grateful for, Mallory, for this whole breakdown experience, traumatic as it was, it's made me a better dad by a considerable margin. Because I don't, I stop ramming adult solutions down the throats of kids, particularly when they very rarely actually ask for solutions. They're coming to me for to feel safe and secure, to articulate or vent or let go of the tensions of the day. What they don't need is me criticising their responses and asking them, why didn't they simply do this, that or the other in that moment? Um, but luckily, because of all this, we've learned a neat little trick, which applies just as well to adults as it does to children. You can change the framing of it. When my daughter comes home furious or my son furious about something that's happened at school or with friends or whatever, um, as I draw breath to offer unsolicited advice, firstly, don't. Secondly, ask them what they want, really, or a hug. And let let my son or daughter guide me in that moment. And if, if you're talking to adults, do you want solutions or support? Oh, by the way, they're allowed, to, they're allowed to change their mind, but you just let them go, right? Let them go, release the tension of it. And you can ask it again. Do you want another hug or do you want some help? Yeah, for me, sometimes I'll call friends and or even like my parents and say, I just need a vent. I don't want you to give me solutions. I'll figure this out. I just need to vent. And I think it's taken me a long time to learn that language to say what I need because there were times where I would vent and someone would give me a solution. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll figure it out. That's not the problem. I just need to talk through this and feel heard. And I think that's the key whether you're an adult or a child, you just want to feel heard in a safe space. And then once you kind of get the emotion out of it, then you can simmer back down and figure out the solution. And when you're talking about feeling emotion before you understand how to process, I went to the Taylor Swift concert and, you know, there were these young girls around us screaming as if they were being murdered the lyrics of certain songs and in my head I was like she's never going to hear you but you are going to burst your vocal cords but it was because those feelings that they associate with the lyrics they feel so intensely and at that age you're feeling so intensely and then I thought about when I was younger and would listen to a song 300 times because the lyrics just didn't hit you hard enough or you felt all these things, but you didn't know what it felt. And so it was interesting when you were talking about your kids, asking them, do you want a hug or do you want support? That there are ways for younger individuals to let their emotions out in a way that's healthy, but maybe adding talking to that also adds to it and helps. Yeah, sure. And one of the sort of 
to call it a mantra might be slightly overstating it, but one of the things that I refer back to all the time in my professional work now, but but also for myself, is to is to not forget that this stuff is better out than in. Absolutely. Lock it inside. Fear and doubt loves it in the dark. Bring it out into the light. It's not so scary. Better out than in. I can't think of a scenario in which that isn't appropriate. A hundred percent. James, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. I'm going to put all the links to your website and where people can learn more about you. Or if you're a corporate company and would like to hire him to come talk to your managers, all of that will be in this episode's show notes. I end every episode with the final three questions. And the first question is, if you had a quote or a mantra that you live by, what would that be? Oh, yeah. Jump the gun, haven't I? It's okay. Uh, Yeah. Better, better out than in. The second question is, if you could relive any one day, which day would you choose? I've really struggled with this one, Mallory. I've really struggled because at risk of sounding perhaps a little bit trite, um, I'm trying really not to live in the past anymore. Like what's happened's happened. It's been great and it's formed who I am and all of those things. Um, so I'm not sure that I would want to relive a day again or do it differently because it feels a bit like regretful and if I was to pick an amazing day which I actually really easily could do and I nearly went there with this but if I was to live it again it wouldn't be as special I think I might spoil I've had guests tell me the exact same thing that they wouldn't choose one day I've even had Mark Nepo answer his response in a poem explaining how he wouldn't want to relive any one day because each day will never be the same again. So I understand that sentiment. I kind of wish I'd thought of a poem now. Oh, no, no, no. He's a poet, so it makes sense for him. The third question is, if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, which song would you choose? Uh, that was that was super easy because I've got a song that I use if I'm feeling particularly nervous or insecure about delivering a talk. And I'll always go for it. Um, as Fat Boy Slim right here, right now, specifically by Pete Tong and the orchestral version. Okay, I am going to add that version to the For Your Listening Pleasure theme song playlist so listeners can hear your theme song along with every other guest's theme songs. Yeah, it's absolute banger. It's Ibiza Classics. If you haven't heard the album, admittedly, I'm aging myself now. It's very much from the 90s. Uh, yes, it's a good one. Oh, I'm excited to hear that version of it. And James, again, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate this conversation. I thought it was a beautiful way to tell your story. And I hope I did you justice. I'm sure it did, matter. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm delighted that lovely Rob uh, managed to hook us up. <laughs>